It's Tuesday, January 16th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump romps in Iowa. Nikki Haley does well among the well-educated and Republicans who claim the last election was not stolen, which is to say she comes in third with 2,000 votes more than Haley, but trailing Trump by 30% was Ron DeSantis, who proved he needs to delegate when it comes to whoever he might appoint as Secretary of Transportation. We've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. A second-class ticket at best. And speaking of punched and faced long odds in the Republican field, there was Vivek Ramaswamy. As of this moment, we are going to suspend this presidential campaign. And this is going to have to be, there is no path for me to be the next president absent things that we don't want to see happen in this country. Well, you becoming president is the big thing I don't want to see happen in this country. It's an interesting, dystopically vague pitch. I could lead this country. I may well be the best man to lead this country. But we'd hate to ever have to be in that position where that would be necessary, would we? Okay. Huh. I say to that, huh. No huh, which is the gentler version of no duh, is the fact that Ramaswamy officially endorsed a certain someone. I called Donald Trump to tell him that I congratulated him on his victory. And now going forward, he will have my full endorsement for the presidency. It's a lot more sensible than Ramaswamy's prior tactic of endorsing Trump for the presidency while he, Ramaswamy, was also running for the presidency. That's what he had been doing. Gotta wonder why buy the ticket to the cover band if the real act is in town. Ramaswamy tried at points in Iowa to spin his argument this way. You want to save Trump, you vote for me. I'm telling yeah. you that. You, have, you vote for Trump. You're sending He's him. No, but you're sending him to his own demise. You're falling into the trap that not only a country's falling in, that he's falling. You want to save Trump, you vote for me. Yeah, instead of asking voters to do those mental gymnastics, he's now just asking them to vote for the original article of impeachment, of dictator for a day, and of leader going into New Hampshire, and of the status as likely Republican nominee. On the show today, you will never believe what blew the hole in that Alaska Airlines flight. Here is a hint. They have an office on every college campus. And they really want you to list your pronouns in your signature. But first, Matt Brunig is a lawyer and an economics expert for the People's Policy Project, which he founded. He knows a lot about poverty. He's a bit of a Scandinavianist when it comes to his brand of socialism, maybe even further to the left than some of Norway. He is much further to the left of me, which I say good, good. I like that. Let's hear him out. He's a smart guy. I always benefit from reading him, and now I hope you will benefit from hearing him. A smart guy with a deep knowledge of the material, Matt Brunig, joins me next. America is in an economic doldrums. Well, that is, if you ask Americans, they're not happy with the economy. But the economy, such as it is, by the standards that we've always measured, the economy is doing quite well. Just ask anyone who wants Joe Biden to get reelected. They will emphasize this point. There are a lot of theories to explain the disconnect between public perception and actual economy. 
And one of the more interesting, and I think in many ways compelling theories, is offered by an interesting and compelling guy. Matt Brunig is the president of 3P, which is the People's Policy Project. He was a lawyer at the National Labor Relations Board and a policy analyst at Demos. And he comes at these issues, not exactly where I start. He's definitely more to the left than I am, but he's a really interesting and rigorous thinker. Welcome back to The Gist, Matt. Oh, thanks for having me back. One of the explanations for why people don't think the economy is doing well, and we'll get to your preferred explanation, which is the economy really isn't doing well, is that, and I find this somewhat compelling, that certain prices stick in people's minds or certain economic indicators stick in people's minds. So they might especially regard the price of gasoline or certain groceries with more salience than they do their own spending power. Um, Do you think this is at all a decent argument, not for everything, but for some of the explanation for the disconnect we've talked about? Yeah, I think it's fair. I mean, uh, you know, there are a lot of sort of quantities in the economy, and some of those uh, have gone well, and some of them have gone badly. uh, But it doesn't mean that individuals kind of net all those out and give them all their proper weight, at least the way like an economist might uh, imagine their weight. So right. some might put or, more or weight. Or a Biden staffer might imagine or hope of their weight. Yeah. So yeah. some might put more weight on the price of bread than they do wages. Um, and also, I'm not sure people always understand the uh, relationship between these things. Um, you know, so if your wages go up, uh, and inflation goes up, you don't think, oh, well, did my wages increase more than inflation? If so, then I'm good to go. You think, wow, I'm glad my wages went up, but inflation took a bunch of it. And if we hadn't had inflation, I would be even richer, not yeah, realizing right. that those are, you know, people definitely say things. This. Great, I got to raise, but my grocery bill went up so much and they might not do the precise calculation to say that wages outpace grocery bills. But also when you talk about this, like, Even if the median or average person has seen their wages outpace inflation, that doesn't mean that it is something other than the case that millions of Americans are not in that boat. And that's really important, right? Yeah. You know, um, if you're thinking about voters, voters are people, right? They're not. uh... This is why we have you on. (laughs) <laughs> they're they're not uh, locations in a distribution, and uh, every location in the distribution could improve, while still large chunks of people see their situation fare worse because they may have may have gone from the seventy fifth percentile to the twenty fifth percentile. Let's say, yeah, there's always going to be a twenty fifth percentile, and everyone in that percentile will say the economy isn't good. But what I was getting at, you had an interesting chart. Which it is true that median wages, well, and if you want to get in and clarify and dispute, but I think generally median wages have uh, outpaced inflation, depending on what metric you use. But what is the median half above and half below? And so there is still this large portion of America where it's not the case, something, you know, I think you point to about 45%. And the thing is, when you ask people about their economic condition, basically everyone in this 45% is going to say bad economy. So you need everyone else in the 55% whose wages outpaced inflation to say good economy, but they're not going to say that, especially because of some of the psychological things we've been talking about and also because the economy so correlates to uh, the party of the person answering the question in relation to the presidency and it becomes just a proxy for approval of the president. 
Yeah, certainly. I think all polling has kind of turned, taken an expressive turn where people just sort of, uh, however they're feeling, they answer you know negatively or positively to whatever question you ask them. It seems like at least a large chunk of people seem to answer that way. So that's not always helpful when we're trying to figure out what really ails people. Um, but yeah, I think uh, you know if you're looking at overall income changes. Uh, what we've seen is, in even in good times, uh, about only maybe, I don't know, 55% of people are seeing their income increase year to year, adjusting for inflation, because people go up and down a lot, and they have a lot of life events that might change things, even things you may not think about. For instance, when you have a kid, technically your household income, uh, you know, when adjusted for size, declines. And unless there's some kind of offsetting child benefit or something like that, you're going to see a decline. So that kind of stuff's happening all the time. They call that churn. People are churning in and out of different economic positions. And so a lot of people are churning up. A lot of people are churning down. Uh, what we saw recently is, especially with inflation, but also with uh, a cut in uh, certain pandemic benefits, we saw the, the, uh, the graph sort of reverse. And it was actually about 55% of people were seeing their income decline rather than increase. Right. But this has, this has always been true. It's always been true that even when times are quote unquote good, good, they're bad for a lot of people. It was true in 1989 and 1999. I'm not going to say 09 because that was the, it was the height of the uh, Great Recession. But it's showing up in polls differently now than it did then, it, isn't it? Yeah, well, this has been one of the interesting parts of the debate is people trying to say, well, wait a minute, look at the number in 2019 or look at the numbers in some of the more, in my mind, silly examples. Look at the number in 1995 or something. And I don't know how much you can really compare answers to these questions from that far away. You know, I mean, the, the main sentiment survey people use began in 1968, I believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was set at 100. That, that's why you see it's always represented as like some weird number. It was 100 in 1968. So anytime it's under 100, sentiment is worse than it was in 1968. But I mean, sh certainly <laughs> the economy has improved quite a bit since then, right? So I think people take change over time into consideration uh, a lot more than just kind of objective levels, you know. But fundamentally, and what the People's Policy Project and what you've been doing throughout your life as a, an economic thinker and writer is to point out that the economy, fine, these measures, uh, unemployment, median wages, they're not inaccurate, but they don't get at the economy. And you point out that the reason people think the economy is bad is that the economy is not working out for them. Yeah, I think in- This is a Bernie Sanders critique, but- this this is why he says it and why he's thought about it and why you Yeah, agree. I think in the, I would say the newspapers, though that might be a bit antiquated, the economy is kind of uh, just the jobs report that comes out once a month. You get all this flurry of activity around it. And that's certainly an important part of the economy. But, you know, you have about 150 million people working. It's about half the population. Um, and the jobs report, you know, it may tick up a few percentage points here and there. That's not the only way people get income. It's not the only thing that's relevant to their consumption situation. Um, it's not. It doesn't. It's not going to reflect things like financial security, uh, volatility. 
it's just one measure. And if you incorporate a broader uh, set of measures, including, you know, one I try to emphasize, which are social benefits, uh, you get a much different picture. Yeah, how the economy is felt. So do you think if the statistics were better, broader, more reliable, got to that question better, we wouldn't be saying the economy is good? We'd have really reliable statistics. I mean, people would debate them, but they would, you know, the the experts and even fair-minded people who wish they weren't the case could point to these better statistics and perhaps even uh, the experts would say, well, by these statistics that really do measure the we- the economic wellness of America, the economy isn't good. So you, you think that is the case or would be the case if we had better statistics? Yeah. And I mean, it's not that we don't have these other statistics. I do think one of the main biases you see in the coverage is really just that the jobs report is put out every month. It's a great piece of news content. The stuff that I have been writing about, the data on that will come out once a year and it'll come out in September of that year and only cover the year prior to that. So it's out of date, it's out of lag, it's only once a year, you're not getting a lot of content from it. I do think that plays a role. If you had monthly reports on you know, how many people are getting kicked off of uh, Medicaid or food stamps or something like that, you, you know, I think you would have a slightly different uh, way of covering these things. Yeah. But a lot of those, it's not in the jobs report, but a lot of those economic indicators, benefits do show up in other ways, right? Household income, ways that people who assess the economy and say, oh, we're doing pretty well, know about and and incorporate into their analysis. Yeah, I would say the the closest, most uh, sort of frequent version of that is the uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis's uh, personal disposable income figure that comes out once a quarter not once a month and you you know you can't that stuff's in it but you can't necessarily uh, disambiguate you know the difference between the wages or and you you get just get an aggregate as well you you don't get distributional information well that seems okay it would be great if it came out once a month or i don't know if it could come out more than that but Sure, part of the reason we'd have disposable income is wages, and part of the reason that a person might have disposable income is more generous uh, benefits from the government. But that's the important thing, how much uh, disposable income they have. What I'm saying is, in other words, if the government cut benefits as they did post-COVID, but wages rose to more than compensate for that, it shouldn't show up uh, as people being... uh, unhappy or less happy than, you know, if that, if the calculation of their disposable income were arrived at in a different way, would it? Yeah. I mean, that's going to go to the question of what kind of weight people put on these things. I think most people uh, say that people would, they, they like their wages more than they like the benefits, <laughs> you know, even if they're equal amounts. Um, and so, you know, maybe that would actually be a, a thumb on the scale in that direction if they offset, but you were replacing benefits with wages. Um, but you know, the problem with this is again, there's sort of the churn question, like a good example of this is unemployment benefits during COVID. We had really generous unemployment benefits. Those have been cut back. Now it's true that at any given time, we only had maybe five, 6% of the workforce on unemployment benefits. But over the course of a year, you have about 20 million people who at some point or another go from being employed to unemployed. Um, and so, I don't know how those people really fully internalize the economy, you know, like when they become unemployed and their benefits are way worse than someone who became unemployed a year ago, 
Does that click? I don't know. Objectively, their situation is worse because unemployment benefits were cut. But in their own experience, it's a little murkier. The question I have when I ask myself, well, if things were different and we had better measurements, is I look at other countries and they don't necessarily have uh, better measurements than we do, but they have different economies. And I've I looked at Canada, Germany, and the UK, and all of those countries have more generous benefits in general, although the UK especially, they're... they're um, they, they reach for austerity more quickly than they reach for surplus. But there's a bigger safety net there, and the economies are a little worse by at least our standards, and people are even more upset. I mean, people think their economies are absolutely Yeah, you know, terrible. we've definitely seen a global, uh, a global wave of these feelings. I think in, in all of these cases, you do still have the kind of <laughs> unique situation, COVID lockdowns, uh, some increase in benefits, some retrenchment in benefits, and then a question of how how quickly are we recovering? Um, and so I, there it's a there are similar experiences uh, across the countries, but the magnitudes are different, and public uh, sentiment, pu- underlying public feeling, might be different. I always think about this in France. You know, the the French seem to be very very upset about the economy all the time, even when it seems yeah. to be doing okay. So. Yeah, right. There should maybe be a national baseline for just discontent in the disposition of the citizenry, right? Yeah, yeah. We have to control like the economy for that. is normed for glo- the uh, happiness index. Yeah. <laughs> so, so far, we've been talking about perceptions, but what do you think makes for a good economy? Uh, you look at some of the Scandinavian countries and say they do better than us because why? Is it as simple as they just are more generous with their safety net? Well, in broad strokes, you kind of have two variables um, that I like to focus on as a more egalitarian, social democratic minded person. But then there's a question of how do you get there? So you have both um, sort of overall inequality and then you have um, volatility, you know, how how unstable you are. Um, And those two things are also related because the more equal things are, the less unstable an individual's life will be because going from say the 75th percentile to the 25th percentile is just not as big a deal when the gap between those is a lot smaller. Now, how they manage to accomplish this is first and foremost is with a comprehensive universal welfare state. And the main uh, feature of that is going to be universal health care. But then beyond that, you provide a cash benefit to every person who is not working. And so children get a cash benefit, elderly people get a cash benefit, disabled people, unemployed people, students. You get cash out to everyone who's not working. And then, of course, people who are working get wage, get wages. Now everyone is getting some kind of income. And that helps a lot, keeping things equal, keeping things smooth, making sure that when you go from one status to another, from employed to unemployed, employed to retired, employed to disabled, whatever, your income uh, is there for you. It also makes it so that uh, the way that people combine into households becomes less relevant, right? We think about, uh, you know, what if you have a disabled spouse? Well, in the US, that could be a serious financial problem. There may be less so because the disabled spouse is definitely getting decent disability benefits. Or if you have five kids instead of two kids or zero kids, well, we can offset that through the welfare state. So those kinds of things really kind of keep things very even, very stable, help you as as you navigate through the ups and downs of life. What's the difference between volatility, which has certainly a negative connotation, and dynamism? 
Uh, America used to be pretty, well, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but America used to be pretty good at if you were born in the lowest quartile, you could have a reasonable expectation to rise to the middle or higher quartiles. That's less true than it was. But so what is the difference between those? So... I mean, it's so social mobility is volatile, right? Uh, so yeah. that's... Um, we want so... You know, America used to be very good at social mobility. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm of more of a mind that that's a little more overrated than than people think, you know, that uh, what, what we really want to do is shrink the differences between the positions in the society as opposed to make it uh, easier for people to move between them. I mean, we should, if you can do both thumbs up, but between the two, I'd rather see the shrinking. Um, but what happens is when the gaps between the different positions are large, that can just be very distressing, you know, like in a perfectly socially mobile world, um, what, uh, 20% of people who are in the top, uh, fifth of the economy will fall down to the bottom fifth in a given year. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know, those are rich people who cares about them, whatever, but they're not anymore after that happens. And that's a very distressing experience. Yeah. And if we're like, oh, they're rich, well, then the next year they're poor and maybe you who were poor are now rich and now you're in the uh, crosshairs. I've always wondered about that. So you see statistics, you know, the top, they might say quartile, decile, let's say the top 10% used to have uh, of the top 10% in a decade, 80% of them would still be in the top 10%. And that's presented as, oh, that's too entrenched. But I wonder, what is the right number? Because it shouldn't be 0%. It probably shouldn't be 10%. Like You want, to some extent, uh, to have the rewards of accruing wealth. You don't want volatility. And then, to be blunt about it, some people just have more skills and talents, and they're obviously going to, or, or maybe, uh, um, stick-to-itiveness. So they're going to stay there. So do you have any thoughts? Of, I... I actually subscribe to your idea, make the gaps less, but do you have any intuition about what a good amount of volatility is? Yeah, well, it's useful to distinguish between kind of year-to-year changes once you're an adult and then the child-to-adult changes usually. Yes, yes, I look at that a lot. So I think most people, when thinking about social mobility, it's a kid who's born poor can become rich or vice versa. Once you're an adult... You know, <laughs> I, uh, I, I would say you don't want a whole lot. You want, I don't know, it's really tough. You want people to be able to move up if they can manage it, but uh, people, their lives get set up around their economic situation. And if things were going up and down that much all the time, uh, it would be a miserable way to live it, for everyone. Well, another way to look at it is yes, it would be nice if all the kids born into the lowest quartile had the ability to rise to the highest quartile. But that means just mathematically, everyone in the highest quartile would be kicked out. And I'm not sure that's good, fair, or optimal either. Yeah. I mean, if it was merited, I guess that would be the, you know, if, if they just got out outperformed, then I suppose, you know, on a pure meritocratic basis, that would be fine. Now, it's, it is funny that Nordic countries have the highest social mobility in the way that that's usually measured, which is the uh, like rank order of generational elasticity. I forget the exact thing. But there have been some very careful studies into why this is, one uh, by a gentleman named James Heckman. Uh, and what he found was that it is achieved solely through the welfare state and wage compression. So essentially, 
because the rungs of the ladder are so much closer together, you can move from the 10th percentile to the 50th percentile a lot more easily. Um, but that that doesn't really amount to like a huge income gain, you know? <clears throat> yeah. Is wage compression achieved through uh, government policy, taxation? There it's achieved primarily through the unions. So the they have the sector union uh, system there where basically 80, 90% of the workers are in unions. The unions uh, represent every worker in a particular sector. So you would think like in the US, the grocery stores, every grocery store would be all the workers would be in the right. same union and they would sit down and on the other side of the table, you have an employer's organization with all the grocery stores and they set the wages that way. And by kind of setting wages across the sectors and then even sometimes across the whole economies, they have over time pursued what they call solidaristic wage policy, where the bottom wages are rising faster than the top wages. And they do this through collective bargaining as opposed to sort of like just kind of freewheeling of labor market negotiation, you know. And we will continue our conversation with Matt Brunig tomorrow, where we shall discuss the racial wealth gap and income inequality. And now the spiel. They figured out why a hole opened up inside that Alaska Airlines jet mid-flight. Yeah, yeah, I know, it was the door plug, but they figured out why the door plug fell off. It was diversity. The diversity, equity, and inclusion commitments made by major airlines are coming under scrutiny following several near catastrophes. Yep, you hire a couple more Hispanics to work in the marketing department and bang, all of a sudden you got holes in your airplanes. Okay, well, maybe that's not the explanation, but it was an explanation reported on by The Morning Wire. That's Ben Shapiro's really very well-listened-to daily podcast, top 10 in all news podcasts. And it's not just one podcaster's wild theory. There are apparently podcasters and billionaires blaming DEI for door mishaps. But The Morning Wire pod host and reporter did examine some countervailing evidence. The DEI hiring commitments of the Federal Aviation Administration and air traffic control, those two are coming under a pretty heavy microscope given an increase in safety violations in recent years. Do we have any hard data to suggest that these issues are, in fact, stemming from new hiring criteria? No, nothing hard. And to be fair, some are pushing back against the idea that these problems were caused by DEI. You've got Mark Cuban, for instance, who has been out defending DEI. And he fired back at Elon Musk and Bill Ackman's criticism of it, saying that he believes it's a valuable hiring tool and that it's not to blame for the Boeing mishaps. Well, Mark Cuban says it might not be DEI. And since the Dallas Mavericks home arena is the American Airline Center, I think Mark Cuban would know. Let me ask you this. Is there any evidence whatsoever that the workers, the technicians, the inspectors, everyone actually involved in the process were hired using standards that were in any way influenced by DEI or even better, that were hired in any documentable way differing from the usual standards of hiring a guy who might be able to be trained to rivet and then training that guy to rivet? Hey, here's an idea. Why don't you, DEI, cause the hole in the jet guy, why don't you fly, I don't know, Aryan Airlines? We're the best and the brightest of the white supremacy movement. We'll build, service, maintain, and fly all the aircraft. Seems really safe, doesn't it? 
I'm not getting into any jumbo jet where a critical studies major soldered the side panels. Thank you. I get it. I get it. When we talk about DEI being unfair, you know, I think it's incumbent upon the person making that claim to be able to point to discernible, identifiable people who are disqualified from a position, who didn't get that position because they weren't the race or gender or protected status that DEI was trying to put in the position, right? I mean, to take the most prominent recent example, Harvard had many Asian American students who had very high test scores and qualifications who were denied admission to Harvard. You could say if it weren't for DEI, those guys, those women would have gotten into Harvard. But there's no equivalent in the Alaska Airlines case. There isn't even the suggestion that a member of the ground crew or the Boeing 737 MAX 9 assembly line was in any way influenced by a lesser qualified applicant being put in those positions by DEI. You know what it was? It was a bad thing that happened to a company, and that company uses DEI. Therefore, DEI must have caused the bad thing. I'm sure the company also has, I don't know, specific spaces for compact cars and hand blowers instead of paper towels in the corporate bathrooms. Maybe those things cause the door to blow off. It's also stupid. And listen, I will say it when the silliness cuts the other way. Overstated and unfalsifiable studies of whiteness, quote-unquote whiteness in an academic setting, or when Ibram Kendi calls for a constitutional amendment to, quote, pre-clear all local, state, and federal public policies in the name of racial equity and to punish officials who, quote, do not voluntarily change their racist policies and ideas. By the way, if you punish people for not voluntarily changing, it's not really voluntary. Oh, that's a bad idea. I say so. There are some aspects of the current DEI regimes in certain institutions that, shall we say, have run a bit afield of the original purpose of increasing diversity, which is a good thing, or inclusion, which is a good thing, or whatever the hell equity is at any given moment, it always changes. I'm not here to make or engage in those arguments. I am here to say that DEI did not cause the plane to fall apart. That too is a bad idea. Hey, remember the 70s and 80s when there was an airplane crash every few months and not a year went by without a totally traumatic commercial airline disaster killing many dozens, if not hundreds? Well, you know, between 1976 and 1980, 88.1% of air traffic controllers were white. And still those accidents happened. It's also stupid. And it's not just stupid. It's plainly stupid. It's clearly stupid. I don't know why Bill Ackman or Elon Musk thinks it's not stupid. All right, let's take Elon Musk out of the equation. He complicates things. But I get it if it's just Ben Shapiro looking for anything to advance a thesis to serve the Ben Shapiro audience so that they hear what they want to hear, that DAI is a boogeyman and that it's to blame for everything. I think The better rhetorical and argumentative strategy is to point to examples that are somewhere in the realm of the plausible. I personally think that it is poor strategy for the culture warriors to pick this as an example for their overall battle. The Morning Wire reporter in question, Megan Basham, was asked to analyze the overall waning status of DEI in our society. Though I would say that the pendulum has already begun swinging back away from DEI to a certain degree, even before that Harvard controversy and these concerns over flight safety. But those events certainly did ramp it up. 
the Harvard controversy and these concerns about flight safety in the same category. It's like saying, well, well, we're worried about the carcinogenic effects of cigarette smoking and witchcraft. I mean, I guess. Or here's one. Election security is a problem. Okay, explain how. Well, you shouldn't be able to vote without an ID. Okay, that's plausible. Also, we need to monitor Italian satellites that could reprogram Dominion voting machines. Both those were argued, I think, far less successfully in the latter category. But this is just me. This is how I think about things and issues. I tend to operate in the realm of the plausible. When you slather on the implausible, I think it hurts your overall case. But there is another way of looking at this, another school of thought, that if you are to make change, any change, what you should do is cultivate a following. And by cultivate, I I mean, it's great if the following's a cult who will follow you anywhere. And then that cult will act as your shock troops to effectuate your change. And that cult will always need feeding and tending to. Eventually, if you tend to your burgeoning cult correctly, the quality of the cuts of red meat you throw them matters less. What matters is the ever-present need to gorge on the red meat. In fact, cult experts will tell you the worse the evidence is, the better it is for the overall project of cult adherence. Anyone could join a cult that believes plausible things, but to join a cult like QAnon, that's the real rub. This is why I can't help but standing aside so many of these movements. Almost every movement makes me suspicious. As soon as you buy into an idea that they've gone too far, it's so often the case that the people pointing out the they've that gone too far, those people have gone too far. There are several fair points to make about the excesses of DEI. Fair points don't pay the ideologically siloed bills or satiate your cult. For that, you need something more like loud ranting and raving far, far from the realm of the plausible. You can try to ratchet it up to levels loud enough to tear the doors off a 737, but in reality, wild claims or DEI isn't how any of that works. The Gist was produced by the quaint Mallards. You know them as Corey Wara, the producer, and Joel Patterson, the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise on The Gist, go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>